Let's uh, let's open up prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship you, Lord, for your just your great care for your church. Lord, we celebrate Reformation Day. We think about the just the, the way that you have preserved your truth and you have raised up men to defend your truth. And God, as we study how you have preserved your word, God, it's just you have made sure that your church has what it needs so that we could live lives that are pleasing to you. And uh, God, I just pray that you'd be with us as we continue to study, that we would uh, just really be thankful for what we have and that we would uh, just continue to to honor you in the way that we that we handle these things, and um, God, that we really treasure them. Uh, just delight to read and study your word, and, uh, and God, that we would be prepared to have an answer for those who uh, who would challenge um, your word and uh, its authority in their lives. And, uh, God, I just pray that um, just that your word would uh, truly just spread, that it would be magnified, that uh, that your glory would be shown forth uh, to the world through uh, through your works. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are continuing our study of how we got the Bible. Um, I will mention, um, Pastor Rick sent me something this week that uh, talked about some of the relation of this to uh, what we're studying here, to Reformation Day. We're, we're celebrating Reformation Day. Um, and just the, the fact that, like, we, we talked about Desiderius Erasmus's uh, having the first published Greek New Testament, um, and that was very influential for the Reformation. Um, Pastor Rick sent me mention that, um, that, you know, that the, the Reformers were able to see that the Bible talked about Repentance, rather than doing penance, um, as the Vulgate had it, um, which was very helpful in uh, people understanding uh, some of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, another another one that I've read about it um, is is also just the the understanding of the word justification uh, that the the Latin uh, the Latin word for justification has more of a meaning of making righteous. Uh, whereas when people had access to the Greek and they were able to look at that, they would see that, well, this means to declare righteous uh, more than to make righteous. And so it was it was very helpful for the reformers to have a more accurate understanding of theology, just being able to look back at the original. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a good uh, lesson for us that we should always be trying to go back to as best we can, the most the most accurate and perfect version of the Word of God that we can get our hands on. Um, so, where we left off, this is, this is uh, Lord willing, the last of our section on corruption and restoration. Six parts here, so hopefully it hasn't been too tedious for you. Um, but, so we looking at the historical things, we've looked at the copying, we've looked at the corruption and the restoration. And we've we finished with our discussion of um, of basically putting back together the New Testament um, and uh, the various things that go along with that, and have shown, I think, uh, that we can be pretty confident that we have a very accurate representation of uh, what the apostles actually wrote. Um, 
the the Old Testament is a little bit of a uh, a different issue. Um, I should note that for the most part, it does work the same as the New Testament um, in terms of like looking at manuscripts, looking at variants, trying to figure out what's the original reading. Um, but there are some noteworthy differences. Um, to start off with, um, our, our manuscript evidence is not as complete. Uh, we just we just don't have. Um, I mean, we technically have more manuscripts, but uh, a very large percentage of them are just very fragmentary. So we don't have as many places of the Old Testament that we just have multiple uh, manuscripts for that one particular place in the Old Testament. So our, our manuscript evidence is not as complete as it is for the New Testament. Um, and the gap between the autographs and our earliest manuscripts is not as small as it is for the New Testament. I mean, for, the, for the New Testament, we're, you know, we can get within 100 years of the completion of the New Testament, um, we can't get anywhere near that close with the with the Old Testament. Um, and but in spite of that, it's still in better shape than any other document of the same time period. Um, you know, we've I know we've talked about that. I don't remember if it was last week or, but I know it was a recent time we were talking about some of you know, the other ancient writings and and some of the the people who criticized the the uh, the Bible and you know how uncertain we are of that text and it's like what's the, we're just way more certain about the the Bible both Old and New Testament than we are of really any other ancient document because we just have just have better evidence. So as we uh, as we begin looking at um, the Old Testament, what we have um, the the primary text or text type, I guess you could say. Um, that we have for the Old Testament is what's known as the Masoretic text. Um, we're gonna we're gonna kind of break down each of these, um, but just to just to start the Masoretic text, that's kind of our base text. That's the that's the most important text we have for the the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, we also have the Qumran texts or the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm sure that all of you have heard of the of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls. I know some of you have even seen uh, some of them on display. Um, so uh, much more fragmentary um, than what we have for the Masoretic text, uh, but still very important, uh, particularly because of the age. Um, and we also have the Samaritan Pentateuch, um, which is valuable, but um, but is um, not as valuable as some of the other things that we have. And we're going to talk about that specifically. Um, and then we also have various translations. Um, just like the New Testament, the Old Testament got translated into other languages uh, fairly early. And so um, we can actually get a, a view of like what the Hebrew text would have looked like at the time that these translations were created, which is helpful for trying to make sure that we know what the, what the text of the Old Testament actually said. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. So to start with, um, the Masoretic text. Um, now, our Masoretic text, we have manuscripts that basically run uh, from the 8th through the 10th centuries. Um, and that's A.D., so uh, when you think that the, uh, the Old Testament was, was completed probably somewhere around 400 B.C., um, you know, that's, that's a pretty big gap. That's several hundred years of a gap. Um, but that is the, the bulk of what we have. 
uh, for Old Testament manuscripts is, is these Masoretic texts uh, from the 8th through the 10th century. Um, so in addition to uh, Codex manuscripts, uh, we have tens of thousands of fragments. Uh, they were discovered in the 1890s in the, uh, the Cairo Geniza, I, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, and the Geniza was, it was a special place where um, when manuscripts were just no longer usable, when they had scraps, when they had things that was like, it's just like, we can't use this anymore. Um, they didn't want to just throw them away. They, they actually wanted to like ritually bury their manuscripts of the Bible that were, you know, that were just basically just junk at this point. Um, and so they would collect them in a Geniza before they would take them and bury them. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, this Geniza was never cleaned out. And in the 1890s, it was discovered and it had just, just tons and tons of fragmentary manuscripts. But it was, you know, it was basically their recycle bin uh, where they were, they were throwing the, the, the not so good manuscripts that they had. I mean, not, not, not so good in terms of like, you know, mistakes in them, but just like they were worn out or they, you know, they were torn or whatever. Um, and so uh, we got a lot of manuscripts. Uh, they're basically Masoretic text manuscripts from this same period, 8th, 8th or 10th centuries is when these manuscripts were created. Um, but they, they provide more evidence. So, I mean, you know, we have over 5,000 manuscripts for the, uh, for the New Testament. I mean, if, you, if you're counting each of these little scraps as a manuscript, then uh, just tens of thousands. So we have lots and lots of pieces of the Old Testament. Um, now, the, uh, the, the Masoretes, um, they attempted to copy the text very exactly. They were very, very careful. Um, and as people have studied the differences within the Masoretic text, um, it's just been very evident that, you know, basically scholars are impressed at the level of uh, care with which they took and made sure and like, they were very aware of the possibilities of copyist errors as they were copying these texts. And they just really worked very hard at making sure that they got them copied accurately. Uh, now the Masoretes, um, just over the centuries, and in, in fact they had been working at least since the sixth century, um, but we just don't have any, you know, copies that are that old. But we we know that they had they had been working with the text for, um, you know, from well before the eighth century. Um, but one of the things that they did was they added elements to the text, uh, elements around the text, basically. They had a, a very high reverence for the actual consonants of the Hebrew text and were very careful to not alter those in, in any way if they could help it. Uh, but they, they put things around the text as basically a help, a help in doing public reading, a help in uh, for copyists, uh, uh, you know, just all sorts of things that they wanted to add to it to make it easier to use, easier to copy, make sure you copy it accurately. Um, and so they added these elements here. Um, they added accents, they added vocalization, they added uh, paratextual elements, and they added uh, Masora, which is actually where we get the term uh, Masoretic text problems from the Masora that they added. So we'll talk about each of these individually. Accents, and I'm not gonna be exhaustive on this, 
and again, if somebody has questions, feel free to just jump in um, and uh, and let me know if I go over something too fast or anything. Um, but they have accents. So the accents basically, um, it's they would have accents for emphasis. They would have accents for pauses that would function very much like our commas. Just basically marks that they would put along with the letters that would give some notion of the way that you're to read it. Um, and then also vocalization, which very much had to do with the way you read it. Um, now, I, I, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned before that the Hebrew doesn't actually have vowels. Um, it's all just consonants. Um, one of the books I was looking at as I was preparing this had a, had a neat little sentence, and I thought I would go ahead and include it. Can anybody read that? Yeah. Anybody want to volunteer to read that? You, you can, can probably, probably understand the sentence with much difficulty. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a fun little thing there where you know the sentence is just it's had all the vowels removed. So you can see that like we could do this in English, um, and you you know they that was the way Hebrew was written, and you know people would just know what vowels to use. Um, but there's always the possibility that it might be ambiguous. There are some places where it's like well you know which vowel should I use? This could be this word or it could be that word. Um, and so the the, the Masoretes um, added, uh, they call it vowel pointing, uh, basically, to give an indication of the way that the things are supposed to be pronounced. Um, so again, just just a help um, for people who you know, if all you have is the text and you're not just like completely steeped in the culture, uh, then the text is going to help you with how to pronounce it. Um, and if you're doing like public reading of the of the scripture, then you have that help. So that's something else that they added to the text. Um, various paratextual uh, elements, uh, things like uh, verse and text divisions. They would do liturgical divisions. Uh, I was reading about that like different manuscripts would have different divisions based on like certain areas would prescribe either reading through the entire Old Testament uh, once in a year or once in every three years, and so they would like just be divided up into these chunks so that like every Sabbath you could read a section and either get through it in a year or get through it in three years. Um, and so various divisions uh, got introduced um, into the text. And then they also had the Masora. Um, and I'm not even certain I'm pronouncing that word right, so I don't know, Pastor Rick, if you know for I sure. Think that's but, that right. But uh, anyway, but the, the Masora were marginal notes um, and end notes. Uh, and it would include things such as the number of words in a book or the number of words in a, in a section um, might have the, the middle consonant of a text. Um, all sorts of things where like when somebody's copying, then they've got this note that basically reminds them, okay, I can go back and I can check. I can count the number of words here and see if I missed anything, or I can, you know, find my middle, you know, find my middle letter and see does it match what it's supposed to. And if not, oh, I may have made a mistake somewhere and I need to check this. Um, now these weren't like, you know, just super consistent. Like every Masoretic text has this full list of all this stuff, but they had these types of notes, um, so they were very clearly. Uh, working, trying to make sure that they uh, that they were very careful in their copying, so they had these uh, these extra notes thrown in there to to assist with that. 
Um, so that's the Masoretic text. Um, so, I mean, it's a very good text. Um, the, uh, I mean, one of the things is that uh, in the early 20th century, you could argue that the, that the Masoretic text, um, that they did a very good job in the Middle Ages of copying uh, the Old Testament. And so during that time period, they were, they were very careful. But who knows what, you know, how good they did before that. Um, well, then we want to move on to the, the Qumran text, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, there's just an image of it. I'm sure many of you have seen pictures of, uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the, the, they were discovered in the 1940s and 50s in various caves around the Dead Sea. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain at least fragments of every Old Testament book except Esther. Uh, some books are more complete than others. I mean, some of them, they just have... Uh, very small fragments. Um, even this can be like somewhat misleading because um, I, I, I did read that uh, they don't actually have anything for First Chronicles, but they do have something for Second Chronicles, and it's assumed that it was a collection of First and Second Chronicles in a single scroll. So you, know, you can't really say that they didn't have an Esther, um, or sorry, that they didn't have a First Chronicles. Um, and even even this, you, you don't want to make too much of the fact that there was no Esther, because um, somebody might look at that and say, oh, well, they, they, did they have some kind of problem with the book of Esther? It's like, well, probably not. It's just the, what they have is very fragmentary. Um, there's just, you just don't have, like, complete copies of the Bible with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it's fragmentary, but, I mean, in spite of, of you know, um, the fragmentary nature of it, we still managed to get uh, virtually every book of the Old Testament represented at least a little bit. Uh, the manuscripts, uh, their dates range from the mid-3rd century B.C. Uh, to the 1st century A.D., so just all sorts of, and not even all the manuscripts that were found in this area were biblical manuscripts, but, um, but anyway, what, what manuscripts they found were they're dated in this range. Um, most of the biblical manuscripts, uh, I believe, are um, from 1st to 2nd century B.C. Um, and one thing that's interesting is that this is basically a thousand years earlier than the oldest Hebrew Masoretic text. So we have a situation where for a while, like people were looking at, well, we, we've got the Masoretic text. They were obviously very careful in the way they copied, but man, what, what could have happened before then? Um, and when they found these texts, basically we were able to just jump back a thousand years um, and look and see what did, the, uh, what did the text look like a thousand years before? What happened in those thousand years? Was there all sorts of corruption to the text of the Bible? Um, and the answer is no. They were actually like very, very similar. Uh, no real substantial differences uh, exist in at least in the vast majority of manuscripts that we found uh, in the in the Qumran texts. Um, now, 95 approximately percent of the manuscripts that were found of the Bible are what we call proto-Masoretic. So basically, it means they match the Masoretic text. They're not exactly, but they're pretty close. They're not going to have the vowel pointing or any of the other things that the Masoretes added. Um, it's just going to be just the consonants. Um, some of them were even in the old Hebrew script. Um, I don't know if we've mentioned that or not, but the, 
but the uh, there was a there's an older Hebrew script, and then um, around the time of the Babylonian exile, they uh, they switched to using different characters uh, for the Hebrew letters. And so um, you you actually have some from uh, both styles of writing letters uh, that are represented in this. Uh, but the vast majority of the manuscripts that we have uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, just basically just fall right in line with the Masoretic text. Um, the other 5% are um, from our various other where they don't quite match, and we're going to come back to that. Um, and uh, probably the most famous is there is a complete Isaiah scroll. I believe that's the only... Uh, complete book of the Old Testament that was discovered there. Um, but that's uh, kind of the most famous piece of it is that you have the entire book of Isaiah. Um, and again, comparisons have been made and um, it looks basically just like the Masoretic text of Isaiah. Really no, no significant difference. Um, now one thing that um, apologists uh, will rightly point to these things and say, look, we've got, you know, we go back a thousand years and we have, um, you know, just a just a real good confirmation that copying was done very accurately through this entire period. Uh, and they'll point to the Isaiah scroll. You know, we have this complete book of Isaiah, and it looks very good. Uh, but sometimes critics will uh, will push back, um, and they'll mention the Jeremiah scrolls. I don't know if any of you ever heard this mentioned, but it's like, oh well. Jeremiah scroll is it's uh, it's 15 percent shorter is what they'll say, um, and um, that's a bit misleading in the way that it's approached, and that's something that again we're going to have to come back to uh, because uh, that it requires a little bit of discussion of the Septuagint. So we're going to get to the Septuagint, and when we when we talk about the Septuagint here later this morning, um, then I'm going to come back to that issue of the uh, the Jeremiah scrolls. But just be aware that like. If you use this and you're talking to somebody and you say, "Look, we can be confident that the Old Testament was copied accurately," say, "Well, what about the what about the Jeremiah scrolls?" Um, just be aware that, that can come up, and it's good to have an answer. So, uh, any questions on any questions so far? Um, Samaritan Pentateuch. Um, this uh, this is something we uh, it only contains the, the first five books of the Old Testament. It is written in Hebrew. Um, so this is the, this is the, the final uh, Hebrew text that we have. Um, but it is just the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, we have 150 manuscripts dating from the 9th through, through 15th century. So comparable to the Masoretic text in terms of, of the age of our manuscripts. Um, one thing that's interesting is that it contains deliberate alterations to support uh, Samaritan theology. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, uh, where there's this discussion about, like, where are you supposed to worship? And the Samaritans, you know, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem. Um, and so in the Samaritan Pentateuch, you actually have a specific command that's put into the Ten Commandments uh, that they are to build an altar on Mount Gerizim. So this is something that um, that Samaritans had actually taken and altered to fit their own theology. And for a number of years, most textual critics just kind of dismissed this text as not being very helpful because it clearly had been altered for theological reasons. 
Um, but one thing that's interesting is that some manuscripts at Qumran match the distinctive readings of the Samaritan Pentateuch without the obvious theological changes. So in that 5% or so of manuscripts that we have, some of those um, match some of the distinctive readings of the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so the, the current theory basically is that, um, that there was versions of the Bible, of the Old Testament, existing back at this time that had some variations, just like you know, just like when we looked at the New Testament documents, we have you know different text types with variations, um, and so there would have been some manuscripts around that had some of these variations. Um, that when the Samaritans took a copy of the Old Testament and altered it, or to a copy of the first five books of the Bible, um, and altered it to match their theology, um, they were using this text type. And they, you know, they brought in those copyist errors from the Old Testament into their documents. Um, so this is, uh, has led textual critics to consider it a valuable source of textual data, where they can look at the at the Samaritan Pentateuch, say, okay, if it's something where it looks like they changed it for theological reasons, we can kind of ignore that. But if there's something that it's got a it's got a strange reading um, that doesn't or a, a, a reading that doesn't match the Masoretic text. It's got a reading that doesn't match the Masoretic text. But there's no theological reason for them to have changed it. Then we could consider that as possibly a legitimate um, variant of the Hebrew Bible that pre-existed the Samaritans taking this. And so we can look at that as a potential variant that we could look at as we're looking at all the different variants. So scholars have kind of come around to viewing the Samaritan Pentateuch as uh, being a, a valuable resource for trying to find, figure out what variants exist uh, for the Old Testament. I mean, obviously it's, it's not necessarily authoritative or anything, but it's just like it gives them some extra information about what possible variants exist. Um, so those are that's really what we have in terms of Hebrew texts of the Bible. Um, is, is we've got the, the Masoretic text, which has kind of been the standby. Um, it's, been the, it's been the thing that we've been using, uh, you know, um, basically since the, since the time of the Reformation um, and to a certain degree from the time that Jerome uh, translated the, the Vulgate. Um, so the, the Masoretic text, we've got the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and we have the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, I obviously clicked in the wrong place because I went backwards. Where now I'm having computer problems. Okay, I'm going the right way. I've lost my mouse cursor, but we'll work through it. Okay, translations. Um, now there are limitations to translations. I mean, this is probably obvious. Um, I mean, you have the same thing with translations of the New Testament uh, from the Greek into various languages uh, in ancient times. Uh, but translations, if we look at those, the translations were done early, we can try to get some idea of variance in the transmission of the text of the Old Testament. Um, but we have, to, we have to realize we're trying to figure out what variants exist in the Hebrew. And so we're trying to get at that from looking at a translation. So it's something that you can use. It's helpful, but 
it's of limited value because you don't necessarily know what they used to translate um, into you know whatever language it was. Um, the different there we go. The different uh, translations, early translations that we have are the Septuagint, uh, which is the the Greek translation. Uh, there are Aramaic targums, so they're in Aramaic. Uh, we have the Syriac, we have the Vulgate, which is in Latin. So those are kind of the early translations that we have um, into other languages that we can use to try to figure out like what likely was the Hebrew behind these different um, these different uh, translations that we have. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the Vulgate more when we talk about translations proper, but there's a there's an old Latin version that exists um, that where basically they, uh, it was translated from the Septuagint, from the Greek. You know, basically they translated the New Testament from the Greek, and they just they took their Greek Old Testament, and they translated that into Latin. Uh, and Jerome came around, and he said, "Well, we ought to we ought to translate the Old Testament from the Hebrew rather from the Greek, uh, rather than from the Greek." And so that's why the the Vulgate, in particular, in Latin, is useful for trying to figure out um, what the what the Hebrew text looked like um, at the time that Jerome was translating the Vulgate. Um, we're only going to look at one of these in particular, and that's the Septuagint. Um, that's kind of the most important Greek translation in the Old Testament. Um, there's the uh, the legend of the 72 translators. It's, it's, it's definitely worth uh, telling this story if you don't know it already. The, uh, <clears throat> the story goes that they wanted to... Um, create a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so they went and they got um, representatives from the different 12 tribes of Israel, and they wound up with 72 translators. Um, and they just sent them all, you know, separate directions, put them all in private rooms, and had each of them translate the, uh, the, the text of the Old Testament from the Hebrew to the Greek. And then when they were all done, they all came back together and compared their versions, and they were all identical. And so clearly it was a miracle of God that, you know, he made a perfect, inspired translation into the Greek. Um, of course, nobody takes that story seriously, but um, that's, a, that's a, a, a legend that had developed around it. Um, but the Septuagint is, I mean, what the word means is, is the 70. Um, so that's, that's kind of where it gets its name is from that legend of the of the 72 translators. Um, it was translated uh, between the 3rd and 1st centuries uh, BC, most likely in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, there is evidence of different translators uh, for different sections. I, I even read that, um, that in some of the books of the Bible, it looks like they were looking at the Septuagint version of the first five books of the Bible, which were probably done earliest, um, and using that kind of as a dictionary as they were translating some of the later books of the Bible. So different translators spread out over a period of time, and they eventually got the entire Old Testament translated into Greek. Um, but even then, uh, many people created revisions, and so there were different versions of the Septuagint that existed, uh, just as different people, um, uh, sometimes they would, you know, they would just go back and try to retranslate things or um, just make various alterations. Um, but still, it's a it's a very useful thing. Um, 
quite frequently in the New Testament when the when the apostles are quoting from the Old Testament, they will actually be just quoting directly from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes they seem to just be freely translating from the Hebrew on their own, um, but uh, it's definitely it was a very influential uh, text of the Old Testament, and uh, for for a period of time that was you know that was basically what the what the church used, and I mean it's what the Greek it's what the Greek church continued to use. So now I want to go back to the issue of uh, Jeremiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, one thing that that uh, you may not know, and I didn't know when I first heard somebody raise the objection of the Jeremiah Scrolls and the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, is that there are, uh, in some places, some, uh, some fairly large differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text um, in terms of just the text of the Bible. Um, and in particular, Jeremiah, um, there's there's a the the Jeremiah from the Septuagint is about 15% shorter than the Masoretic text. There's just several verses that we have in our Masoretic text that are not included um, in the Septuagint. So this is something that's it's basically been known uh, for centuries. People have people have had this comparison that they can make and see. That okay, well, for whatever reason, the Septuagint in some places uh, does differ a fair amount. Now, um, when you look at, uh, well, see, but one thing that's that's important to note is that uh, prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all we had for the Septuagint was the Greek Septuagint. We didn't have, um, you know, any Hebrew um, representation of this, and so there was. There was always the question: Is like, well, are these differences that exist in the Septuagint, are they there just because the uh, the, the translators made these changes, or maybe the copyists of the Septuagint uh, accidentally made these changes over time, or do they actually represent uh, something that existed in Hebrew? And it was interesting that uh, when they went through the the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they found some of the Jeremiah scrolls that they have. Um, are actually missing some of the same verses that are missing from the Septuagint. Now, the Jeremiah scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls are very fragmentary. Uh, you know, there's there's just just small sections, um, but there's enough to see that some of the Jeremiah scrolls seem to match uh, the Septuagint in terms of what verses are included and what verses are not. And there, interestingly enough. Um, other manuscripts of Jeremiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls match the Masoretic text. They have the full text that we have in the Masoretic text. Um, and so it's, it's certainly not accurate to say that the Jeremiah Scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls are shorter. Um, we have these little fragments that indicate that, um, that, there's, that the Septuagint version, the shortened version, um, was represented in the Hebrew manuscripts at the Dead Sea. Um, and we have manuscripts that indicate that the fuller version of the Masoretic text was represented in the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So basically what we have is we have evidence that both of these versions um, existed in the Hebrew um, during this period of time. Um, now, in terms of why these things exist, uh, I mean, people can only speculate. I mean, people have speculated that 
um, that Jeremiah himself um, put out two versions of his of his prophecies. Um, there's the possibility that you know that one of them has been corrupted for some reason, but the fact is is that at this time both of them were in circulation, um, and the version we have, I mean, as far as we can tell, existed at the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have basically Masoretic type text type scrolls of Jeremiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so it's not just like, oh, well, they just represent the Dead Sea, or so they just represent the Septuagint shorter version. That's not the case. Um, it's both text types are represented. You know, that can be kind of confusing. Ben? So I was just curious. So you're, it sounds like what you're saying is what we have in our English translations is the Masoretic text overall. Do they, like, note that at all? In most Bibles, that this Mr. Is, say that again. In most, uh, in most English translations, do they note the fact that there are differences in the manuscripts or something like that? Um, they, they or? It, yes, it, you will occasionally see notes in in English translations of the Old Testament um, that will mention like you know variant readings from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Um, in terms of like what we're talking about with Jeremiah, there's you're not going to have like a note of like um, you know these three verses are missing from the Septuagint, um, yes. you know, because you know it's all what we have. What we have in our Bibles is rightly based on the Hebrew text, yes. and we don't have a Hebrew text, you know, of the Book of Jeremiah that where we have a whole Hebrew text of Jeremiah that is the Septuagint version. Yes. We've got, I think, two or three fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls out of the, I think, six fragments of Jeremiah um, that, 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 that indicate, okay, these verses are missing just like they are in the Septuagint. Yes. But we don't, we don't have like a whole text in Hebrew that matches that text type. So, um, so you're, you're typically not going to be finding like notes on you know, any of the larger changes you see in the Septuagint. Um, if they're actually, if we do actually have Hebrew manuscripts that represent those things, then you might see those. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't think. I don't, I don't just know of any specifically of these particular uh, differences in Jeremiah that are found in any English translation notes. I don't think so. So I don't remember seeing any. But. But anyway. But I mean, it's. But it's. I guess what I want to say is you should be aware of this if somebody brings it up. But they will often bring it up as if. Oh, we just found a, a shortened version of Jeremiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's not the case. It's that we found different text types of Jeremiah, um, and um, and some of them do match the uh, the Septuagint in terms of like what verses are included. So they may have had a shorter version of Jeremiah in amongst their copies of Jeremiah at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, but that in no way um, undermines the, the authority of the text of Jeremiah that we have. I mean, they were using the Masoretic text text type of Jeremiah, you know, at the Qumran community, and it's just been, you know, accurately copied throughout the centuries. So we can, we can have uh, great confidence of that. And also, like, if you, you know, for centuries people have been able to compare, you know, Jeremiah and the Septuagint and, and Jeremiah in the Masoretic text, and there's like there's no real theological differences. I mean, it's just you know there's there's a little more material in the Masoretic text than there is in the 
in the Septuagint, but it's still, it's still basically the same Jeremiah. I mean, I know I specifically looked at the, at the differences that are in chapter 10 because that's, um, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the ones where we actually have a manuscript from the Dead Sea where we can see that these verses are missing. And it's this discussion that's basically just, um, just uh, criticizing the idea of, of worshiping things that you've created with your hands where you're, you know, you're taking wood and you're laying on silver and stuff like that. And it's like some of some of that description of the ridiculousness of worshiping the work of your hands um, is missing from the Septuagint version of it. But I guess like it's still the same point's still there. So, any questions about that? Now that one that, that can be kind of confusing. It took me a while to find all the information. But if anybody wants to discuss it further, I have I can certainly point you to more resources. Um, so. Wrapping up Old Testament transmission. Um, evidence indicates that it was copied with great care. Uh, that's what we see when we look at the evidence. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls moved us back a thousand years with no significant change. So, it's like people say, oh, well, the earliest we have is like, you know, 8th century, 9th century AD. You know, it was probably just the hundreds of years before that. It was probably just really, really corrupted. It's like, well, we just jumped back a thousand years, and it looked like looked like they were really careful with it. So they probably were careful with it the whole time. Um, no reason to think otherwise. Um, but there are still textual questions. Um, you know, people still have to do the the textual critical work that, that we've been talking about with both the Old and New Testament. Um, but the text has been preserved by God's providential care, essentially pure. We, we have the word of God. There's questions here and there about, you know, this particular spot and that particular spot, but we have um, essentially the word of God. Any questions about Old Testament textual criticism? Okay. Um, looks like I've got eight or nine minutes to do manuscript discoveries, so we'll uh, see if we can flow through that. Manuscript discoveries, they're, they're still making manuscript discoveries. Um, where do they make manuscript discoveries? Um, libraries, ancient libraries. Um, there's a lot of libraries that have a lot of ancient books and they just don't even have them cataloged. I mean, it's just like, yeah, we've got this vault full of all this stuff and nobody's been able to like go through them and figure out what they are. So um, people will go through these libraries and they'll actually like discover, okay, this ancient manuscript you have here, that's actually a copy of the Gospels, um, you know, and so we find new manuscripts that way. Um, sometimes they're found in monasteries, you go to monasteries, and uh, sometimes, you know, much of the copying was done in monasteries uh, throughout the centuries, and so monasteries will often contain uh, biblical manuscripts. Uh, there are also palimpsests. Does anybody know what a palimpsest is? That's one of the most fancy technical words. Um, what that is, is uh, in uh, ancient times when people were hand copying manuscripts and getting material to write on was fairly expensive, uh, sometimes the cheapest thing to do, if you had uh, a work that was like the wording is fading and maybe you're missing a few pages and it's like this is just not a very useful book anymore, uh, they would actually erase the text. They would be able to like scrape the ink away and and get a, a fairly clean sheet of parchment again 
and then be able to make a new book with that. So they're like just recycling their material. Um, but the thing is, is like when they do that, there's still like some residue of the ink that is there. And so uh, we have over and over again found places where we have, where we're able to find manuscripts of the Bible that somebody had erased this old copy of the Bible and had written some other book on top of it. And there's a there's a famous one where um, somebody's sermons got um, got put on top of the text of the Bible. Um, and throughout the years, people have used various chemicals to try to like bring the text back up to the surface, or used uh, different types of like ultraviolet light and stuff like that. And so people have been able to go through and find various manuscripts that are like just in another book, um, and they're just kind of behind the text. Obviously, it's hard to read it because you know you've got a text on top of it that's going to be much darker. Um, but that's one way that people um, discover manuscripts. Uh, sometimes you have multiple manuscripts that are bound together, and so you might have a, you know, an ancient Greek manuscript of the of the New Testament, um, you know, and it's cataloged, and we know that it exists. And then somebody like starts working with it and going through it, and they discover. Oh, you know, it's like you know, maybe we have Paul's letters, and then, and then uh, at the end you have you know tacked on uh, another copy of you know First and Second Thessalonians, you know, that's in a different hand, you know, in addition to the copy of First and Second Thessalonians you already had in there. So somebody had basically bound in you know another copy uh, there. So that's I mean basically that's another manuscript discovery. Um, uh, repurposed scraps. Um, sometimes people would, you know, old worn-out manuscripts. They would just chop them up, and then they would take the pieces and they would like paste them into the binding of books and stuff like that. And so uh, they've actually found, you know, sm very small pieces of biblical manuscripts um, through uh, just just finding these that are that are like bound into books like that. Just repurposed scraps of uh, of the Bible. Um, and then, of course, there are archaeological finds. You know, sometimes people are just digging somewhere, and they uncover, you know, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's an example of that, where, you know, they found all these manuscripts um, in caves around the Dead Sea. <coughs> just various places where, you know, people are excavating, and they will find uh, manuscripts. Um, oh, gosh, I forgot. I wanted to tell the story of uh, Codex Sinaiticus. We're going to have to make it quick, because we are almost out of time. Um, it's one of the most famous texts of, of the Bible we have. It's actually Old and New Testament, um, Old Testament Septuagint in Greek, um, and then uh, New Testament um, from the 4th century. Um, it was discovered by uh, Constantine Tischendorf, um, and he went to the convent of uh, St. Catherine at the foot of Mount Sinai in 1844. Um, and he was specifically looking for manuscripts. I mean, his... You know what his work was was he was looking at biblical manuscripts and trying to you know trying to look at the differences and and he was like a lot of manuscripts he was this was before you could photograph manuscripts and so he was doing the next best thing he would go he would find manuscripts and he would just copy out that manuscript as best he could the way that one read and make a printed copy of it so you could you know you could go buy a a printed copy that was should have all the readings of this particular manuscript. So he was publishing um, different uh, different copies of the New Testament um, that way. But anyway, so he was looking for manuscripts, um, and while he was there at this uh, at this convent, 
um, he noticed a, a large basket of old parchments that they had sitting out, um, and um, and he starts he starts looking through it and, and was asking him questions about it, and uh, they told him that, that, that already two heaps of papers like these, uh, moldered by time, had been burned. So these were old scraps of parchment that they were they were just using to light their fires and stuff like that. Um, and he and he looked through this basket, and he found about 60 pages of the Greek Old Testament. So a whole bunch of pages out of the Septuagint. And he kind of like you know went crazy. He's like, what are you guys doing? You're you're burning you're burning biblical manuscripts. You shouldn't be doing this. Um, and uh, you know, and it's like they were gonna burn him anyway, so they were willing to give him about three fourths of that pile. But his excitement made them think, like, maybe these are maybe these are valuable, maybe these are worth something. So they kept fifteen pages for themselves, and you know, decided not to burn them. But but they let him, you know, have several of them, um, you know, and he took them back and um, and published them. And you know, he's like, he really wanted to know where they got these, but they were like kind of tight lipped about it. Um, and then 15 years later, uh, 1859, um, he's, he's gone back. I think this is his third trip uh, to, this, to this convent. Um, but at this point, uh, the prior showed him uh, Codex Sinaiticus, the, the, the book that we have there. Um, and it all, he also had those 15 pages that the, that the monks at the, at the monastery had, uh, had decided not to burn. It was included there. Um, and so, at that point, it's like he had access to Codex Sinaiticus, and you know, was able to take it and get it transcribed. And then, of course, then since then, we've had it photographed. Um, obviously, it's not complete, but it's it's one of the most complete Bibles that we have from the fourth century. It's the entire New Testament, and it's quite a bit of the Old Testament. I mean, originally it would have included all the Old Testament, but they had they had started burning some of the pages, so there's there's some of the Old Testament that's missing. Um, real quickly, uh, the Rylands Manuscript P52, many of you may have seen this before, uh, was purchased as part of a collection of scraps of ancient papyrus in 1920. Uh, and um, Colin Roberts, he was examining these manuscripts in 1934, so 14 years later, uh, when he identified the text of John 18 on one of these scraps. Um, and so he's just like going through them, trying to figure out what they are, and he finds, oh, this is John 18. Um, it's been dated to the first half of the second century, so somewhere between 100 and 150. Um, probably the oldest New Testament uh, manuscript uh, that has been discovered. Uh, it's just very old. And when you think that, like, I mean, we don't necessarily know exactly when the Gospel of John was written, but traditionally the idea is that it was written around 90. I mean, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> if, if it was written around 90 and, and we have a copy that's from somewhere around 100 to 150, that's... That's a pretty early copy. Now, I mean, it's it is just a fragment, but still, I mean, it matches our text. Um, so, um, and then finally, I know we're out of time. I do want to mention uh, CSNTM. That's the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. I know I mentioned Dan Wallace before. Dan Wallace is the guy that heads this up. He's a professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. He's famous for writing the Greek grammar. Um, and he's very much involved in this. Um, since 2002, they have been digitally photographing New Testament manuscripts. Um, basically, what he's looking at is like, you know, sometimes accidents happen, manuscripts get destroyed, 
Sometimes wars happen, manuscripts get destroyed. Um, you know, sometimes they just fall apart through age. You know, if scholars are looking at them, um, they, you know, the manuscripts are fragile. And basically, his idea is okay. We want to basically race as fast as we can and digitally photograph as many New Testament manuscripts as we could possibly get our hands on, so that we have these preserved, so that we don't ever lose any more uh, manuscripts of the Bible. Um, and so, his his team of people they travel all around the world to libraries and monasteries, and they photograph these manuscripts. It's really a great work. Um, and in the process, they have discovered dozens of new manuscripts that we didn't have documented. Um, I mean, the, I mentioned the example of you know different books being uh, or in different manuscripts being bound together. I know that one of the examples uh, of what they found was you know they found a they found a manuscript that way that it was just bound in at the back of the of a of a different manuscript. But then there's just also various. Um, ones that they're, they go to these libraries and it's like, yeah, we've got this big collection. We don't have a catalog. We don't know what we have. Um, and so they go through it and they find them and get them photographed. Um, so really a great work that CSNTM does um, in trying to get photographs of, of all the manuscripts uh, of the New Testament. And you can go to their website and they put all their photographs up there for free. So it's just like um, they, they make it where it's available for the world to see. Um, so finally, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 8, uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, God preserves his word. Uh, we, we need to be honest about the difficulties. We don't just have, you know, golden tablets with, you know, exactly letter for letter. We know exactly what uh, everybody wrote from, you know, from Moses to John. Um, but we have... Um, God's word preserved um, in all essentials, and we can have great confidence in that. God's word stands forever. Any final thoughts, comments, questions before we we finish with the the corruption and restoration of the of Bible? All right, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your great work and uh, preserving your word and um, just all the the um, fascinating stories, all the neat details. Um, it's uh, it's really just amazing to see um, what you have done. And uh, God, we thank you that we can have great confidence uh, in your word, that we can just study it, that we can learn, we can know your mind, uh, we can live by your grace in a way that pleases you and uh, God I just pray that we would continue to, to treasure your word uh, that we would defend it against those who would uh, question its authority and uh, God just that it would uh, just change our lives and conform us to the image of Christ I pray in his name Amen